Are you ready for your close-up, Miss Desmond? <laughs> well, I'm not Miss Desmond, but I am ready for my close-up. We're doing a photo shoot immediately following this podcast we are. in order to uh, post some pictures of us on the website and, and various other social media locations. It'll be our first shoot together. Hey, well, and I'm hoping they have like one of those fans that like blow your hair. And then we'll I need to... misting. <laughs> I like misting. some misting. We will not be asked to take our shirts off. We will not. So I don't much have to, as we may beg. I don't have to oil down or anything like. That. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> yes, Peggy Virginius, a, a wonderful photographer, is coming over. She actually took our wedding photos. Oh, she did. Betsy Those were great. And my wedding photos. So we're looking forward to that. Yeah. Uh, it's another episode of Booth One Podcast fans, uh, your number one choice for the best in the art of lively conversation about the arts and popular culture. Frank Taranjo and Gary Zabinski here. It's January 22nd, Frank. It is. Oh, wait, it's April 22nd. <laughs> You're living in the past. What in the name of all that's holy is going on with the Chicago <laughs> weather this spring? Yeah. There's sleet, there's snow, there's rain, temperatures that, that rival Siberian winters. Uh, completely. I woke up this week and saw giant snowflakes out the window, and I thought, what fresh hell is this? <laughs> the Cubs have been playing in practically thermal down jerseys and mountain climbing cleats. It's just been ridiculous. I had tickets for last Sunday's Cubs game, and it got <laughs> snowed out. I've never had that happen before. Yeah, it was absolutely brutal It was bitter outside. Was. Well, we've spent some time indoors because of this terrible weather, and I did want to mention something. We were talking about this right before the the podcast. We were honored to be invited to the Writers Theater annual fundraising gala last night uh-huh. by a friend of the show, Mary Pat Studdard and her husband Andy. She's a longtime listener, a great friend. We met her doing a live broadcast at Writers during the production of Company. We went up there and did sort of a panel discussion with Stephen Shellhart, and there were audience members, and she was one of the audience members. We did a little Sondheim trivia, and she was really, really good at it. (laughs) So she came up and introduced herself afterwards, and we've been uh, good friends ever since. She serves as Booth One's creative consultant as well, Mm -hmm. providing excellent suggestions for guests and shows and places to check out. She recommends things uh, at Writers and of course, she invited us to the Writers Theater Gala. The gala was fantastic. The theme this year was the music of Motown. Oh, nice. And what they did was have six wonderful, wonderful performers, uh, three men, three women, and a combo band of about seven pieces, drums, keyboards, cool. uh, some reeds, a horn player. Wow. Uh, and they did a... Well, they did a little pastiche of Motown hits, but what they do is they recalibrate the words and the lyrics to be pertinent to the writer's gala. For instance, they did Midnight Train to Georgia, Uh and they changed it to the Midnight Train to Glencoe. (laughs) (laughs) And it okay. actually worked pretty well. Yeah. I, the, the, the singers were fantastic. The performers were really wonderful. And the so audience they, probably loved it. They did it. about yeah. 20, 25 minutes of that uh, to warm the audience up between the salad and the main course. Cool. That was really, really fun. We had a terrific time. I sat next to a wonderful actor named Rob Lindley, uh, who was hilarious and entertaining. And we had a good time at our table, all told. It was a wonderful event at the Four Seasons Hotel. Oh, Frank. nice. 
series. Mary Pat, by the way, is a marvelous photographer, and among her many roles as an important member of the Writers Theatre family, she was the major production sponsor for Trevor the Musical. Oh, wow. Uh, you weren't here when we had the Trevor the Musical I cast wasn't, kids no, on. And uh, I didn't that get was to see really, it. really a lot of fun. One of my favorite episodes. She's a marvelous photographer, as I said, and she's done some amazing portraits of elephants uh, huh. when she was on safari in Africa, wow. I guess. I guess wow. you call it going on safari. Yeah. Have you ever gone on one of those things? I have not. I've been on safaris, but not that kind of a safari. <laughs> If you catch my drift, I I I, I don't. What sort of so <laughs> just adventures? I'm adventures, just about. sure, yeah. sure. Uh-huh. She turns these photographs she takes into beautiful greeting cards, and egged on by our producer, she has begun to make box sets of the cards. We'll let you know how to get these in future episodes. We'll oh, post wow. something on the oh, website. Absolutely. I think she's going to launch a, a small business, probably right out of her home, where she. <laughs> takes these photographs and mounts them or reproduces them on note cards. And and they are spectacular. Lots of wildlife, lots of flora. She's really quite talented. So thank you, Mary Pat and Andy, for inviting us yesterday. We had a wonderful, wonderful time. And speaking of wonderful times, Frank, the Share Show. Yeah, I got my tickets. You did? I did. Uh, When are you going? July 1st. Well, it's headed for Broadway, and it's found its remaining shares for the pre-Broadway run. Have you read this? I did, yeah. Yeah, actresses Teal Wicks and Marcella Diamond will join the previously announced Stephanie J. Block as the legendary singer at three different stages in her life. Now, Stephanie J. Block is a two-time Tony Award winner for Best Actress in a Musical for The Mystery of Edwin Drood in 2013 and Best Featured Actress in a Musical for Falsettos, which is just a couple of seasons ago on Broadway. She made her Broadway debut in the 2003 original production of The Boy from Oz, playing Liza Liza Minnelli. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, having read the part of Elphaba in the first reading of Wicked back in 2000, she was the first actress to play the role in the U.S. touring production from 2005 to 2006. The new musical premieres here in Chicago mm-hmm. uh, June 12th through July 15th in a limited engagement at Broadway in Chicago's Oriental Theater. Now, it's interesting they're using three different shares because I saw Summer, the Donna Summer musical, and they used three different Donna Summers. So I don't know if that's what you're supposed to do when you have Diva if one copied the other, or if they both came up with it on their own. I don't know. But Donna Summer, I can see three different portions of her life fairly clearly. Cher, I'm not so sure. Do we know very much about her childhood? Let me read a show description, and you, okay. you tell me what you think. The Cher show is based on the life of, and this is in the production notes that have been published for public consumption, Sherilyn Sarkeesian LaPierre Bono Allman, Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, the kid on a tricycle vowing to be famous. Well, I guess that's, so that's use the a first girl. one. The, the teenage phenom who crashes at 20. I think that Teal Wicks is the teenage phenom okay. role. I don't know if they're going to have a little girl or not. You, well, we'll find out. Yeah, You'll have to tell us. Will. The glam TV star who quits at the top. The would-be actress with an Oscar. The rock goddess with 100 million records sold. The legend who's done it all, still scared to walk on stage. The wife, mother, daughter, sister, friend. The woman looking for love. Oh. The ultimate survivor chasing her dream. <laughs> what else could they possibly say? Well, you know, Cher's been involved with this production. She went and saw a read-through. She's been involved. Now, Donna Summer obviously wasn't because she's passed. But, you know, if there was things that weren't accurate, Cher could probably say, uh, no, 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 can't do that. 
I'm thinking. Yeah, I, I'm thinking as well. The production notes uh, uh, finally end up saying they're all here dressed to kill, singing their asses off, uh. telling it like it is, <laughs> and they're all the star of the Cher show. I think Cher wrote that. <laughs> Masella Diamond, I believe it's how you pronounce it, Masella Diamond, she'll be making her Broadway debut. Also announced in the casting were Jared Spector as Sonny Bono, Michael Barise as Bob Mackey, her longtime oh. costume designer. Who I guess has done the costumes for and the show. And he is involved yeah. in the yeah. production, yes, absolutely. Michael Campayo as Bob Camaletti, uh, Matthew Heidzik as Greg Allman. Uh-huh. And Emily Skinner uh, from The Prince of Broadway as Cher's mom, Georgia Holt. Who is still alive. You're kidding. Yeah, she's 90-something. She's gorgeous. Only you would know that. <laughs> well, the reason I know that was because she was on I Love Lucy. As? Cher's mother. Um, if you remember the episode where they're in Paris and Lucy and Ethel want a Paris gowned, uh, Jacques Marcel dress and of course they're much too expensive and so Ricky and Fred play a joke on them where they get burlap and just because all the Paris gowns are so ridiculous and they have a little tailor make up some of these ridiculous gowns somehow Jacques Marcel sees them in those gowns and at the end two of his models are walking in front of them with those same gowns on and one of them is Cher's mother. Does she have any lines? She does not have lines. She just walks and looks but beautiful. But you know this from your I know extensive this from, research. From, actually, the I know this from show. Behind the Music. When they had a share behind the music, they say, Cher's mother was an actress, and they show her in that particular scene. So that's how I know that. Fabulous trivia there, Frank. <laughs> it is, it is. Uh, the musical's book is by Rick Elise, direction by Jason Moore. Of course, there's no recorded composer for the musical since they're using share songs yeah, yeah. so there's no dozens composer. of composers and there probably will be a, a like a, a cast album with them singing share songs i yeah. guess and as we said bob mackey is also on board with yeah, the production yeah i can't wait fantastic got stuff. third row center Something else you saw at Broadway in Chicago that I unfortunately missed, and I wanted to get your take on it, was Pretty Woman, the musical. I did. That's opening now on Broadway, uh, scheduled for previews July 20th, just around Uh the corner, and opening night is scheduled now for August 16th. What can you tell us about the Pretty Woman, the musical that you attended? Were you there early in the run? Uh, We were there maybe in about the middle of the run, I think. Uh, Interesting, they're not opening till August, which means that we part of next season's Tony considerations. That's correct, yeah. But I enjoyed it. It's kind of a can't miss, unless they really screwed it up, which they didn't. It has a fun plot that most people know if you've seen the movie. The music is by Brian Adams, the rocker from the 80s, and it's really, it doesn't all sound like Brian Adams' music. It's actually actually pretty good. Uh, The woman who plays Vivian, which is the character, Samantha Barks, is quite good. In fact, she's really good. She played Eponine, I think, in the movie version of Les Mis. So she has a little bit of, of um, you know experience under her belt. She's quite compelling. She really is fun to watch, and she's got a great voice. Steve Kazee, I think that's how you say it, who won the Tony for once, plays the Richard Gere part. And I thought he was a little low-key, because she's pretty dazzling, and in order for him to come out, he needs to do a little bit. That would be my one criticism. I mean, I like him. I thought he was fantastic in in Once, but he just needs a little more oomph in this. He sort of fades into the background and kind of lets her completely take over. And you've got to have an interesting Edward. You've got to Edward, have an interesting yeah. Edward mm-hmm. in order to make her well, more interesting. Yes. Otherwise, I mean, Richard Gere. 
there yeah. were, that movie was full of movie stars, uh, albeit it made Julia Roberts a star in it its did. own right. But yeah, it did. I, you know, she was she was really quality in that film, mm-hmm. and and he was very strong and, yeah, and very present. It, and this it really looks, is as much yeah. a story about him as it is about her. It is, and it should be, and it isn't quite in the play yet. That's what I would do. He's right for the part. He looks right. He sings beautifully. Just during some of the scenes, I just wanted a little more from him. We also were up close, I think, third, fourth row center in this one, too, so we were able to see it pretty closely. But the one I thought was really fun was Orfe, who plays Kit, who's kind of her, like, wisecrack and sidekick. Those parts Best are always friend. fun. Best friend. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And she was wonderful. She's got some good songs. She's got these great outfits. She's kind of like this... Uh, Hooker with a heart of gold kind of thing because she's one of her street friends, but I thought she was terrific. That show is full of hookers with hearts of gold. It is, frankly. it is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't have a whole lot of experience with hookers. It gives hookers but a bad name. It, <laughs> or a good name. Which <laughs> or they, a good name. Which they may not want. Yeah. Uh, but the sets are fantastic. I mean, it's really a nicely constructed urban feel. There's also another another actor in there, Mr. Thompson, I think he plays. He's, he's the... Um, He's the, He's the concierge at concierge. the hotel, right? Or the manager at the hotel. He is the manager at the hotel, and I think it's Eric Anderson, I think is the actor who's playing it. But he's wonderful. He plays two parts. He plays kind of like the street guy who sort of you know works with the girls, and then he plays his very sophisticated hotel manager, and uh, he's great. So, and they do the happy ending, right? They get they together do. at the end. They Well, I don't want to spoil it for anybody, but well, if you've seen the movie, you probably know. Yeah, rent the movie, everybody, if you yeah, haven't seen yeah. the movie. Actually, do rent the movie if you're going to see the play, because they use a lot of the same costumes. Really? Yeah, they do. They have, you know, their the famous red dress that she's in. Sure. And that white dress she's in. The only thing a friend of mine that I was with was disappointed because the polka dot dress My does not favorite, show up. that brown and white oh, polka dot dress with, with the big hat. Right, that's not in it. Beautiful. Maybe they'll th- add it. I think she wears it to the polo match. Right, 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 right. <laughs> so maybe they've had in the complaints. Movie. Yes, in the movie. In the movie. Maybe yeah. they'll uh, have some complaints and they'll add that in. Well, listen, Frank, speaking of hookers, <laughs> you and I, I think we need to take this field trip. Stormy Daniels. Yes. The adult film star who's recently made headlines for an alleged uh, affair with President Donald Trump is scheduled to perform in Chicago this June. I know, at the Admiral Theater. Yeah, born Stephanie Clifford. She's set to appear at the Admiral in Albany Park June 14th through 16th. So three opportunities, and I don't know if she does more than one show a night. I would suspect that she's capable of doing more than one show a night. A director of the club, which is at 3940 West Lawrence Avenue, said show details were still being worked out. The performances are part of Daniel's (laughs) Make America Horny again strip club tour which began last month after the wall street journal reported the lawyer for trump who we now all know is michael cohen Mm -hmm. arranged for the hundred and thirty thousand dollar payment to daniels before the 2016 election the attorney later said the money came from his own pocket blah 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 that's all going to come out we're going to find out all of it The New York Daily News reported that Daniel's appearance this past Thursday Mm -hmm. at a Long Island strip club drew only a handful of fans. Really? Yeah, I'm surprised about that, unless they're just so jaded in New York that they just, whatever. Maybe, yeah. yeah. I think it'll sell out in Chicago. Yeah, she wore a little red riding hood costume before performing topless. (laughs) 
I know it's not your cup of tea, but I think it would be really fun to say that we went and to report on it live. Let's see how we feel in June. Well, I'll be in Prague, so I won't be able to go unless she's doing an Eastern European tour. I'm going to have to find another date. You will have to find somebody else to take. An event listing for Daniel's upcoming shows at the Admiral had not drawn much Facebook interest either as of this past Friday afternoon. If you want to know more, you can go to www.admiralx. That's AdmiralX.com. If it's popular, she'll come back when I'm here. (laughs) Just for you. Just for me, yes. Something else you just saw, and I talked about this a couple of episodes ago, so I don't want to dwell on it too long, but you were not able to attend this with us, so you went by yourself this past week. You saw The Beauty Queen of Lenane at North Light Theater, which... I'll tell our listeners, actually, is, is closing today. Right. But I was just curious if you could give me kind of a thumbnail review of what you thought of this production. You've seen this play before because you're a big Martin McDonough fan, yes? I am, and actually it was the first play of his that I saw when I saw it in New York in, I don't know, 96 or whenever it opened. And I loved it. I mean, it just knocked me out. And I've been a McDonough fan ever since. I've seen every single one of his plays, including Hangman. Now, the Northlight does really good stuff. I have seen a lot of really good things there. They have an interesting collection of shows. And I saw, actually, Skull and Connemara there. They've done a couple yeah, of his other shows there. Yeah, you've seen quite a few was of it? his things. Yeah, and I've seen them there. And uh, this was good. The two reservations that I had, which I think kind of folds in with what you had talked about, the problem that I had was with the daughter in the sense that she starts off at the beginning of the play angry at the mother, which she is. I mean, she's taking care of the mother and the mother's and, really and cramping she's the her lead style. Character. And she's the lead character. But the first act, of the, the first half of the first act is really funny, and she didn't get any of the humor from it because all the lines, she like yelled nastily at the mother as opposed to making these sort of light but barbed comments, which is what you do when you're doing McDonough because he he says outrageous things that you're laughing at, and then you're like, oh my God, what am I laughing at? We weren't allowed really to laugh mm. with her, and mm. so that was the problem that I had with her performance. I actually agree with you a lot on that, and I think it's a directorial uh, completely, problem. Completely, because the actress was perfectly capable. Yeah. She could have been fine. She looked fine. Yeah. She had some other really nice Played moments. Kate Fry, one yeah, of the she's, finest she's actresses really good. in she's the really city, good. for sure. But the director evidently wanted her to come out swinging, and that doesn't quite work, because... At the beginning, we don't know whose side we're on. Is this poor mother put upon by this horrible daughter? Which is what we think at the beginning, but that's not really the case at all. Yeah. And the mother was playing her just right. A little, if they both played a little bit lighter with these barbs back going back and forth, we wouldn't realize what the real situation was until later. So I think it gave away something and lost something. I mean, it lost the humor. And if, when you lose Martin McDonough's humor, the plays come out just sort of mean-spirited, and that's not right. The other problem a little bit was the staging. It was a complete thrust stage, but really three-quarter, not just thrust, but three-quarter. Now, where I was sitting was fine, but I've talked to other people who have seen it, and they blocked each other in the sense that you looked at the back of the head of one person, but yet they were blocking the face that they were talking to, so you saw neither. They needed to angle them so that, okay, I'm seeing the back of this person's head, but I'm watching the other person's head. It's a a difficult space. Uh, We've seen many things at Northlight that have been terrific. But I think it's a challenging space to work in. You can't not see either person. Right. I'll see one. That's the convention. But to see neither? I think we're pretty much in agreement on, I think so. on what we I think saw. So. We'll look forward to the next thing at Northlight. Yeah. 
You mentioned the Tony Awards just a minute ago. I wanted to touch upon this. Five months after having declared last summer's production of, do you remember 1984 on Broadway? I saw it. Five months ago, they dubbed it ineligible for awards consideration because Scott Rudin, the producer, had denied a member of the Tony nominating committee access to the show. Oh, really? Do you remember this happening? Awards administrators said it was back in contention. They offered no explanation for the change. For next year, it's going to be in contention? This year. This year, oh. Yeah, this year's Tony's on June 10th. Oh, okay. Yeah, I guess I saw it in October. So, yeah. Yeah, back in contention. Back in. Hmm. Uh, Apparently, the reviewer or the Tony nominating committee member had also missed a couple of other shows he didn't get to. So, they finally decided that it was not really. Scott Rudin's fault that he didn't let this guy well, in. And sort of this guy's, yeah, 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 this guy who didn't show up to things. The committee averted a likely showdown between actors giving blistering performances in the revival of Tony Kushner's two-part Angels in America as well, deciding that Nathan Lane, as the lawyer Roy Cohen, would be eligible in the featured actor category, and Andrew Garfield, who's playing Prior Walter, a gay man with AIDS, who is left by his lover, remains in the running for lead actor. Oh. Yeah. Uh, This is a change. If you remember back in uh, 1993, Frank, can you think back that far? I can. Let's go back (laughs) in time. Where a millennium approaches, the first part of Angels took the best play, Tony. Ron Liebman, who played Roy Cohn in that, won for leading actor. And Steven Spinella won as featured actor. So they've actually just switched them. Huh. I saw the original production. I wonder if they did anything to make one more lead, or maybe they just thought upon reevaluating that there was more weight to the one than the other. Frankly, yeah. I, th- I think they both should be lead actor yeah. nominees, yeah. but in fairness, they're breaking it up so that they can both have the At chance least get a nomination. to win. Yeah. How to Treat Other Ensemble Casts was also on the docket. In Three Tall Women, only Glenda Jackson will contend for leading actress. Laurie Metcalf and Allison Pill will be considered eligible in the featured actress category. Oh. Now, to be clear, this is before the nominations even come right. out, but they're leaving the door open uh, okay. for lots of people to win, in fact, yeah, and, and yeah. not have the three tall women competing against each right, other. Right, or have them suck up all three of the slots, because I think they only do four. The only exception here is Lobby Hero, the Kenneth Lonergan play uh-huh. currently on Broadway. All four actors, including the film television stars Chris Evans and Michael Sarah, will be judged as featured performers. Everybody. Yeah, oh. they're all going to be, well, well as they call it in the Oscars, supporting actors, yeah. but uh-huh. featured performers, not lead performers. Well, in 1984, when I saw it, I thought it was well done, and I thought the actors are really good, but oh my God, what an unpleasant experience. (laughs) I think 1984 is something you want to read, not see, because there's that whole torture scene at the end was like, ew. That's what I understand. So it was pretty grisly. In fact, there's a a lobby card in the lobby that says there's elements of torture and pain and suffering (laughs) in this play. If you're squeamish, don't buy a ticket. Have you heard of the gypsy robe? I do, yes. You know what the gypsy robe is? Yes. Mm -hmm. This is the robe garment that is given to a member of a Broadway show chorus, Mm -hmm. one of the dancers, one of the chorus people. It's actually given to the one with the most longevity, the one who's been on Broadway in choruses the longest. Mm -hmm. This is given by... Actors' Equity Association. It's not yearly. They give it every time a Broadway musical opens. Right. So they have decided that 
they're going to change the name. Oh, really? They are. Actors' Equity Association doesn't think that the name Gypsy really is... Politically correct. (laughs) Yes. The Roma culture tends to find it pejorative. Mm-hmm. And, you know, at times it can be even used as a reference to some sort of illicit activity like gypsy cab, which are usually unlicensed cabs. And the word jip, you know, God, that was such a jip, actually comes from the word gypsy. Yeah. And so, again, that's, that's pejorative. But I think the word, these people were called gypsies. I mean, if you, I mean, that was how they sort of referred to them. If you were like in all these different Broadway shows as a dancer and went from one to the other, you were sort of a gypsy. So back then it was, it was a nice term for them, but not yes, for the they were they gypsies. were itinerant dancers mm-hmm. and singers who show jumped show. from show to show, yeah. and particularly when they went on tour, they would jump and hop oh, from yeah, city completely. to city looking for the next job. It's prompted a combination of reflection and a little head-scratching in the theater world. I will read this from Cheetah Rivera, ah. who has been a guest on this show. Mm-hmm. It's an honor to be called a gypsy, she said. It's a title to be proud of. She's a two-time Tony Award winner who has been performing on Broadway since the 1950s. Wow. If anything, it brings attention to the word and the group. I have always considered myself a gypsy and still do. Now, I've been a member of Actors' Equity Association for low these many years, <laughs> and They're going to put it out to the members as to what they should rename this. So if you have any suggestions, and I won't put you on the spot now, but if you have any Hmm. suggestions, I'd be happy to write in my ideas. I I, I might just write in, I think they should just keep the name the same. It's it's a catchy, well-known term, but they're thinking that maybe it's time has come. I'm wondering if they do change the name in the Share Show, will they change Gypsies, Tramps, and Thieves to something else? could catch on and it would happen in other areas too and what would they call the musical mama rose and her children right exactly yeah like you know girl rose lee girl rose lee (laughs) they'd have to come up with something else you know i'll actually i have a friend who won that one year my friend brian o'brien is an actor in new york he's currently in the show chicago and has been in it for a while and a number of years ago he won it so i may have to contact him and say like what do you think yeah do you think it should be you're an actual gypsy robe winner do you think it should be changed or not report on that next week and and just to be clear with our listeners, you don't really win the gypsy robe. You are afforded the opportunity to wear the gypsy right. robe. there is an actual be- robe, yeah. And there's actually dozens and dozens of them because yeah. you have the opportunity to actually put a patch on the robe uh-huh. of your show, either your logo or something like that, and then everybody in the chorus signs it. Right. And it is given to, as I said, the chorus member with the most longevity for whatever particular musical is open. And they do it right after a performance, usually right after or right before a performance. And they do it on stage, and you're awarded it by the last person who received it. Uh And you put it on, and you have to walk around the stage while you're surrounded by your (laughs) chorus members. You have to walk around three times, and they all get to touch it as you go past. And then you have to visit every single dressing room, even the Leeds dressing rooms, (laughs) up and down the stairs. That's your duties as, as being the robe recipient. Uh-huh. See, I'm already not using the word. I'm calling it the robe. <laughs> the robe. Like that Richard Burton movie. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
Speaking of congregating, I haven't done a shark story in a while. You know, I have this deathly fear of sharks. Somebody told me that they saw a T-shirt the other day that said, Lake Michigan, no sharks. (laughs) (laughs) I think I I need a bunch of those. I think I I think I need a whole wardrobe of different colors of that. Well, you wouldn't be living a couple of blocks away from Lake Michigan if it had sharks, I'm sure. Well... (laughs) I don't go near the lake. I mean, I'm I'm a mile from the lake. I think that's plenty far enough. Oh, because there's of, no sharks, Gary. <laughs> so you say. Are you afraid of fish? Yes. <laughs> yes, real? I'm you afraid are. of deep water. I can barely take a bath <laughs> in my soaking tub. I have to stand up to take a bath because oh I, I don't want to know that, that there's, you know, emptiness, water, depths beneath me. <laughs> Anyway, groups of basking sharks ranging from as few as 30 to nearly, get this, 1,400 individual animals have been observed aggregating in waters from Nova Scotia to Long Island, while individual sightings are fairly common. Seeing large groups is not. But these animals, these basking sharks, uh, adults are typically in the 20 to 26-foot range. The reason the animals congregate has not been clearly determined. I like to think it's because... They're lining up to try to get tickets to Harry Potter and the Cursed Child. <laughs> Maybe. Although it is thought to be related to feeding, socializing, and or courtship, given behaviors of other sharks. Hmm. They could also be waiting for Bette Midler tickets. <laughs> you know, Bette's uh, returning to Hello to Dolly. Dolly. No, I did not know you, that. You did not know. <laughs> a scoop. It is a scoop. Absolutely. Yeah. Bette's returning for six weeks only. Oh. They've announced the closing of this show for the end of August. Oh, really? Producers have announced the closing of the show. It's doing pretty well with uh, Bette Bet is Peters. coming back starting on July 15th to finish off the last six wow. weeks of the run. Wow. And David Hyde Pierce is coming back as oh, well. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Yeah. That's so, a, that, I think that's a first. I don't know of any other show where the original cast members came back. Uh, well, especially not to kind of close the show right, once it's already right. been announced. But boy, people are going to be scalping those tickets like oh, crazy. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I would I, even want to see it again. Yeah, we, with her. You might. Yeah. yeah, July 15th, if you're going to be anywhere near New York. Hmm. By the way, observations of these aggregation events are relatively rare in almost 40 years of aerial surveys. Ten large basking shark aggregation events were opportunistically recorded and photographed. Only ten. And they're the second largest fish in the world, growing as long as 32 feet and weighing more than five tons. Oh, jeez. <laughs> they are highly migratory, slow-moving animals with their large mouths open to filter zooplankton from seawater. Mm. They are considered passive, yeah, and no danger <laughs> to humans other than that posed by their large size and their rough skin. And you, who they have it in for? Fourteen hundred sharks gathered a lot. in one small area that is in a the lot. Atlantic Ocean. <laughs> I want to talk about one other show that you saw. Yeah. Recently, you went to the theater Wit here. I did to see a friend of yours, Shirley Callaghan. No, my friend is Jen Engstrom. She's oh, a former Jen student. Jen Engstrom. Yeah. She- Sheila Callaghan is in this show as well. You went to see something called Women Alone Eating Salad. Exactly. Women laughing alone eating salad. Oh, it's <laughs> even laughing. it's even longer and more ridiculous a title than I than I said. Because it's based on a ridiculous concept. The playwright observed that a lot of times when you were looking at stock footage of women, there was always a woman 
sitting alone laughing and eating a salad. Like that was the greatest pleasure that a woman could possibly have. They're not eating steaks. They're not eating anything else. They're just, you know, with a tomato in their mouth. They're, they're, eating, they're young and they're pretty and they're eating salad. And so she thought that was an interesting sort of metaphor for the kind of sex role play that she she's developed. I did go to see Jen Engstrom. She's a former student of mine and uh, she's done a lot of things in the Chicago area. Not only she is wonderful, but everybody in the play is really quite good. I don't know how long the run is. But it I actually know. just opened not too long ago. It's been extended now till yeah. May 12th. Yeah, yeah. So it's running another three weeks or yeah, so. Yeah, yeah. I would recommend people go see it. It's it's really interesting because the, the first act you have, the, it's three women and one man are the, are the actors, and you have a mother-son concept, and then you have this guy, two different women that he's interested in, and various things happen. The second act, and I don't think I'm giving anything away, but the second act, they flip it, and the women all play the men's parts, and the man plays a, a woman part. And Jen played the mother of this young man in the first act, and then she played the young man like 10 years later in this big corporate business world. And they're so effective at playing both genders that it was really, really amazing. She was great. This one young woman whose name is Ichaka Agba, African-American actress, when she's in the second act, you swear that it's her brother and it's not really her because she's so effective as that. Jan is also great. So did they use makeup and hair and costumes to do these transformations from gender to gender? Yeah, they did. Although in the case of the one woman I was talking about, I mean, she had kind of long dreadlocks and so all they did was pull them back. Oh, that'll work for... Yeah. yeah. And they added a beard to her and she had these rather large breasts, which are kind of one of the things they talk about in the story, and they padded her stomach out so that it was all sort of one big curve, so oh, she looked like a man with a pot belly, so that was very effective. That's they cool. put a beard on her, which, which looked good, and the same thing with Jen. They put her in sort of this suit. What was really interesting was the young man who they transformed into the woman because he played her as a very hard, cold businesswoman because she's sort of running this company and so he has an attractive face but they put this wig on him and then he just played her so cold and they're all very believable in their own gender and in the other gender as well and there's a lot in the play that's hilariously funny and other parts that's absurd and other parts that are really quite serious and I think makes some really interesting points mm. gives you stuff to talk about afterwards now, tell us again the extraordinary name of this play the name of the play is women laughing alone with salad. With salad. Yes, in the opening scene, the three of the women are sitting there eating salad and they're having orgasms while they're eating. They're just, oh, oh, it's so good. Oh, it's so wonderful. <laughs> so I recommend it. I think it was great fun. I'll have what she's having. Yeah, completely. Absolutely. <laughs> That's totally it. Running through May 12th, mm-hmm. if you get a chance to get to theater wit and see that. I would recommend it. We haven't done one of these in a while, a segment called Good Times and Bum Times. Mm. I've seen them all in my dear. <laughs> we are still here. On the uh, Good Times segment this week, it's a good week for sweet revenge. When an Indiana teenager bought every cupcake in a bakery after being fat shamed by people in line behind her. Oh, I heard about Vega this. Blossom 19, great name, yeah. Vega Blossom yeah. 19 decided it was worth the $54 after she heard a woman behind her say, let's hope this fat 
pig. Doesn't buy all the cupcakes. So she did. <laughs> I know. I heard about that. Bless her heart. <laughs> God bless Vega. That's fantastic. And in the uh, bum times, it's a bad week for legal defenses after a Florida woman allegedly told police that, yes, the bag of marijuana in her purse did belong to her, but that the bag of cocaine did not. <laughs> It's a windy day, protested Kanisha Posey, 26. It must have flown in through the window and into my purse. <laughs> Why a nickel every time that happened? Oh, uh, you can't make this stuff up. <laughs> Not a good week for Kanisha Posey. <laughs> they don't say whatever happened to her, but... I suspect that she's not roaming free at the moment. I would guess not, yeah. Well, in our Kiss of Death segment this week, Frank, I, I absolutely, positively had to do this one. Sometimes I debate about several or I kind of search mm-hmm. for things and something comes up. This one was a no-brainer for me, mostly okay. because this is one of the idols of my filmdom fandom, I guess. Mm, okay. And hopefully one of yours as well. Milos Forman yeah, passed away. Yeah. Filmmaker who challenged Hollywood with his subversive touch and twice directed movies that won the Oscar for Best Picture. He did. You know those? Cuckoo's Nest and... Amadeus. Amadeus. Mr. Foreman came to the United States from what was then Czechoslovakia. Uh-huh. In the 1960s, as a rebellious young filmmaker, Foreman was an important component of the Czechoslovak new wave. He was. His 1967 film, The Fireman's Ball, was seen by film scholars and authorities in Czechoslovakia as a biting satire on Eastern European communism. As a result, it was banned for many years in Foreman's home country. Just a few years later, in 1975, however, Mr. Foreman's One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest won five Oscars, including those for Best Director and Best Picture. Jack Nicholson and Louise Fletcher, of course, also yeah, won. It's one of the few movies that won picture, actor, actress, and director. It happened one night. Yep. And? Is it Annie Hall? No. <laughs> no, it's Silence of the Lambs. Silence of the Lambs, yeah. Or Silence of Annie Hall, maybe. <laughs> That's what it is. She wasn't very silent. Did you know, and we watched Ben Mankiewicz on uh, TCM interviewing Michael Douglas, and he revealed that the doctor in that film, Cuckoo's Nest, who interviews Nicholson early on when mm-hmm. he's being admitted, and they have this exchange across a desk. He's the actual doctor of that actual mental hospital oh, where really? they filmed it. Yeah, wow. and I don't recall his name. Wow. In his memoir, Mr. Foreman said the producers of Cuckoo's Nest, Michael Douglas and Saul Zantz, sought him out because I seemed to be in the price range. <laughs> I mean, it was pretty much an unknown. The film put yeah. Mr. Foreman in the front rank of directors who make big commercial films with counterculture sensibilities. Mm-hmm. Mr. Foreman said one of his greatest pleasures from the film, which was shot in Czechoslovakia had been the chance to return in triumph to his communist-controlled homeland. Mr. Foreman was caught up in the turmoil of occupation not many years after his birth in February 1932. As a boy, he witnessed Germany's invasion in 1939. Both his mother and the man that he believed to be his father, a teacher named Rudolf Foreman, were separately seized by the Germans and killed in death camps. Well, for years, Milos Foreman vaguely told interviewers that he believed himself to be half Jewish, though both his parents attended Protestant churches. After the 19th 
1964 release of his feature film Black Peter, which is about the misadventures of a teenager beginning his working life. This again, early, early form and career. He was contacted by a woman who had been with his mother in Auschwitz. The woman explained that Mr. Foreman was actually the son of a Jewish architect with whom Mr. Foreman's mother had had an affair. So Rudolph was not his actual father. Mr. Foreman eventually found his biological father who had survived the war and moved to Ecuador. Reared by foster parents, Mr. Foreman attended film school in Prague. When the Soviet Union invaded in August 1968, Mr. Foreman was in Paris negotiating to make a Hollywood film. It was called Taking Off and was released in 1971. (laughs) It did so poorly, Mr. Foreman said, that he wound up owing the studio $500. (laughs) How do you do that? $500? Not very good deal making, if you ask me. How do you you get points and then wind up owing money on points? And how do you owe only five hundred dollars? Well, have you ever heard of taking off? I and I'm sure don't it was think I'm sure it was made by an yeah. off-brand studio. Probably uh, through the early 1970s, Mr. Foreman, a hearty bon vivant without means for the good life. For much of that time, he holed up in the storied Chelsea Hotel in Manhattan. Ah. Fun fact: Stanley Bard who was a past kiss of death on our program, ran the Chelsea Hotel as a bohemian sanctuary for struggling artists at the time. He would give them rooms rent-free. He'd let them come and go as they would while they were sort of making their careers writers, painters, directors, actors, all kinds of people. Yeah, when I was in New York in October, we were staying near the Chelsea Hotel, and they were redoing the facade on the front. Mm -hmm. So they're spiffing it up. Here's an underrated film, as far as I'm concerned, Hair. Oh, uh, from yeah. 1979, an adaptation of the counterculture Broadway musical and Ragtime, which came next in 1981, yeah. a film uh, of the E.L. doctoral novel with James Cagney, mm-hmm. left less impressions, but they kept Mr. Foreman on the list of directors whom executives were willing to trust with more sophisticated projects. Mm-hmm. It was for Mr. Zance that Mr. Foreman next struck gold with the aforementioned Amadeus, which presented Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart as a genius who undermined authority with his art. There's that sub-counterculture theme uh, recurring. The film won eight Oscars, besides the ones for Best Picture and Best Director. F. Murray Abraham won the Best Actor Oscar. Tom Holtz, the title character, lost that year. He did. But he was nominated. He was. But the film left Mr. Foreman with a bittersweet and ultimately correct sense that his career had peaked. Mr. Foreman next made a series of films that pushed Hollywood out of its comfort zone. 1989's Valmont, a costume drama starring Colin Firth and Annette Bening, based on an 18th century novel. Unfortunately, it was overshadowed by the previous year's Dangerous Liaisons, which was taken from the same source material. Also, The People vs. Larry Flint. This is a movie that I actually quite like. Oh, I thought it was great. And and Courtney Love was terrific in that. Indeed. Press the Limits of tolerance for an anti-hero with its sympathetic portrait of the Hustler magazine publisher. It was a box office bust. Then in 99, Man in the Moon, Mr. Foreman's complex portrait of the comic Andy Kaufman did only just a little bit better. A little known fact, he named his twin sons Andy and James after Jim Carrey, who starred in the film. Uh, And Andy Kaufman? And Andy Kaufman. Here's another little fun fact that no one has any way of knowing. I was in New York when they were filming that, and my friend and I stood and watched them film scenes. And I don't remember seeing Foreman there, but I actually saw it being filmed in New York. Yeah, you, you weren't an extra or anything. In it, no, I thought of tripping and falling on the set, but they probably would have cut that part out. 
Earlier in the program, I mentioned that we were going to be ready for our close-ups because we were having a photo session. Right. You may hear some clicking in the background, listeners. This is our photographer, Peggy Virginius, who has arrived now and is taking some candid shots while we wind up the episode. I was hoping people think that was my brain functioning. <laughs> clicking? <laughs> yeah. I sometimes click when I think. You're like a shutter. I am. <laughs> Mr. Foreman's next film was something called Goya's Ghosts for Samuel Goldwyn, starring Javier Bardem and Natalie Portman, but it found a minuscule audience when it was released in 2007. I don't even, I don't know even that. remember no, I that. I haven't heard that. It appeared to play out themes from Mr. Foreman's life as its heroine and artist's model is imprisoned and tortured because of what were claimed to be her hidden Jewish roots and habits. Mm. I have to correct one thing that might have been a misunderstanding. It was actually Amadeus, which was shot in Czechoslovakia, uh-huh. not One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Okay. So if I inferred that, I, I apologize. Or if I implied that, I should say. Right. If yeah. you inferred that, then you're wrong. I inferred that from your implication. Then you're wrong. Then you're yeah. wrong. Uh, Milo Foreman, 86 years old, has left us, won Oscars for Cuckoo's Nest and Amadeus. One of my favorite filmmakers. Even those flops that you mentioned were all sort of noble failures. It's not like he sold out and it did crap. He always did a movie that had something to say, and people didn't always want to listen, but I'm sure he felt proud of every single thing he did, which is the most you can ask from a director. Very talented man. Well, visit us at uh, www.booth-1. That's O-N-E, booth-one.com. it's not dash written out. It's just a dash. Correct. Thank you for clarifying. (laughs) I don't want them to like be searching. Well, go there for more information about our podcast and to listen to past episodes. Hey, join us next time when our guest will be playwright and director Brett... Navu, I believe his name is pronounced, mm-hmm. um, and we're going to see his play, his current play, A Timeline, in uh, a week or yeah. so, and uh, we'll be talking to him right here in our Booth One studios mm-hmm. next time. For Booth One, this is Gary Zabinski and Frank Taranjo saying so long and keep listening. Mm-hmm.